This week I was looking at a couple of stories and a few videos that I saw on YouTube and I, YouTube, and I was reminded of the fact, especially an average ordinary person like me, I'm intrigued by stories of other average people who do things or step into the role of something that's way beyond average. Uh, when the ordinary takes on the mantle that, of that which is extraordinary, uh, we find great delight in those stories. And I, I want to rush a little bit through the introduction uh, because of time. So I, I had some great stories I was going to insert here. So you can just pretend that I told you some wonderful examples of, of ordinary people that have done some extraordinary things. But it's equally as true that we feel horror and revulsion when ordinary, average, the guy next door does that which is inexplicable and unexpected. And all we got to do is look at the newspaper or watch uh, the news on TV uh, to see examples after examples after examples uh, of those things and those kind of, of acts. And what it shows is that even ordinary people can make choices that have astounding results for either good uh, or for evil that may even alter history. And you know, it's interesting when you look at the consequence of some of life's choices, you find something really significant. Because we can come face to face with sin. And its power to corrupt and to deflect and destroy and you know, if we were to take the time to flip through the pages of Scripture, we see that power in play in the lives of a bunch of different Bible characters. But probably no one as clearly as Judas Iscariot, who chose to betray Jesus Christ, resulting in his name bringing dishonor and shame probably for the rest of eternity because he yielded himself to sin. We're going to continue this morning uh, in our Easter series, The Windows on Easter. And if you've got your bulletin, you can see uh, the outline for that series as we make our way through uh, the Easter weekend. I shared with you last week one of my fears about Easter, one of my concerns as the one tasked to walk us through from a preaching standpoint. And that is that for some of us, it's a very familiar story. And as I said last week, over-familiarity can jade us. And it can cause us to lose the, the wonder of the mystery of God. And so what I suggested last week is that we really need to have a fresh look at the Easter story. Uh, to, to see it from a different angle that will revolutionize our appreciation for what took place that Easter weekend. What happened, why it happened, and what the implications are for you and I. And as I said last week, when you look through a window, you look through it and you see what's taking place on the other side. And fortunately, we can have this different perspective. We can see through somebody else's window on Easter when we look at the different eyewitness accounts of what took place on that Easter. And so when we look through the window, when we look through one of these eyewitness windows, we see their perspective. We see what took place that first Easter weekend from their point of view. Now the reality is some windows are easy to look through. Some windows aren't easy to look through. I was, I was thinking about the, the season that's coming very quickly upon us. 
There are going to be days when it's easy for me to look out on our side yard and see that the lawn is cut. There are going to be other days where I don't even want to look through the window because I know the grass is growing out of control. Last week we looked at Malachus's window of surprise, and I think that that was a good window to look through. I think many of you were encouraged when we saw the true nature of Jesus just shine right through, that he would care for someone as, humanly speaking, insignificant as a slave. A slave who had come to help in the arrest and in the harm of Jesus, and yet Jesus would stoop down, would show kindness and compassion and heal Malachus. That was a wonderful window to look through. The window today, not so much. In fact, it's a window that I would like to keep the curtain on. It's probably why I've never spoken specifically on Judas in over 30 years. And yet, it's when we look through Judas's window of sin, as difficult as it might be to look through, it's when we look through his window, I think that we get the full picture of what took place and why it took place that first Easter weekend. And what makes it really difficult looking through that window is the fact that when we look through a window, we see our reflection. And it's true when we look through Judas's window of sin. I see my reflection. And I realize that although Judas... Iscariot might be dead and gone. In a way, he's still alive and well. His spirit is still among us. Let's talk about Judas Iscariot. In fact, when I, when I say the name Judas, Judas Iscariot, what's the word that comes to your mind? Just shout it out. Betrayer. Cheater. Liar. Thief? Selfish. Selfish? Fearful. Sorry? Fearful. Fearful? Any others? Human? Human? Mm-hmm. Insecure. Insecure. I, I put a list together of my own when I just wrote the name Judas Iscariot down. I started listing words that came to my mind, and some of them are reflected in what you shared. Traitor. Probably the most infamous traitor of all time. Puzzling, perplexing. Why did Judas do what he did, and why did he feel so guilty about it afterwards? Mysterious. Judas is a mysterious guy. He's hard to figure out. It's, we can figure out most of the apostles from what we're told. Not so much Judas. What made him tick? Was this his plan all along? What did, what did it mean when, when the Gospels tell us that Satan entered Judas? What did Jesus mean when he said Judas was doomed to destruction? How about the word misunderstood? If you read all the writings from over the centuries about Judas, you get all sorts of takes on Judas. Yes, you have those who hate him and put him in the same category as Hitler. 
But there are those who had great pity on Judas. I mean, the poor guy. By the time he figured out what he had done, it was way too late to change and to undo his evil act. Others point their finger at God. That was not kind to have one person carry so much guilt for what took place that first Easter weekend. This morning, I want to look at Judas. As much as I don't want to look at Judas, I want to look at Judas. I want to unravel a little bit about the mystery of who he was. I want to look at the million-dollar question, why did he do what he did? And I think most importantly to see is there a message in the story of Judas for you and I. Let's go to the narrative. Uh, Just like Malachus' story, all the gospel writers give us information about Judas. I chose uh, Matthew for the praise team to read a little bit about the narrative. Uh, Brian actually has filled us in on some of the narrative uh, as he shared around the table. I don't even know where to begin with Judas' story, because I think for our purposes this morning, you could go all the way back to when Jesus feeds the 5,000, and I'll pick that up in a a few moments. Uh, Definitely, his story can begin uh, when... um, Jesus is anointed uh, with his expensive perfume that uh, could have been used for something else, as we'll see in a few moments. But let's just go to the upper room. It's probably 9, 10 o'clock at night. The disciples are in the upper room. They've participated in a Passover uh, celebration with Jesus. Uh, I'm sure the mood is somber and reflective. There's a, there's a, a sense of impending trouble in the air when all of a sudden Jesus jolts them with announcement. One of you is going to betray me. I can just imagine the disciples' reaction. Well, at least 11 of them anyways. Totally bewildered. Who would betray Jesus? Certainly no one, as they looked around at the other 11, no one here would betray Jesus. Oh, Jesus has got to be joking. This must be some kind of Passover prank But they look at Jesus and he's still serious. Nothing is giving way in his eyes. And he breaks the silence and he stands up and he takes a piece of bread and he dips it in the wine sauce. And he says, the person I give this to is the person who is going to betray me. And he hands it to uh, to Judas. And looks at Judas and says, what you've got to do, do quickly. And Judas takes the bread and he leaves the room to go and make some final preparations with the group of men that were going to come and arrest Jesus. Shortly after, Jesus and the disciples leave the upper room and they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where they like to go to pray and and they were to be praying. Jesus prayed. The disciples had a little bit of a nap. Jesus wakes the disciples up and he's talking to them when all of a sudden you can see the flickering of lights and this group of of soldiers and, and, and temple police and and religious elders and leaders led by Judas. Malachus was with them. Make their way over to where Jesus is. And Judas had already made um, part of the plan is that he would go and he would greet Jesus with a kiss. So for sure they knew that they got the right guy. And so as they got there, Judas walks up to Jesus and greets him, Rabbi, and kisses him on the cheek. And it's interesting. The, wor- the word that is used for kiss 
in the Greek is a very specific word. It means to kiss fervently and affectionately. It's, it's the kind of warm kiss that you would reserve for the most dearest of friends. And it's with that kiss that Judas betrays Jesus. And off Jesus is taken with those who came to arrest him, and we know that the disciples fled, and, and Peter and, and another disciple followed close by. Fast forward a few hours, it's the early hours of the morning, and as Brian was telling us, that the kangaroo court is finished. The Jews are done with Jesus. As far as they're concerned, he is guilty of blasphemy, and he must be put to death. But they couldn't order the death of Jesus, so they had to take him to Pilate, the, the Roman governor. O only he could carry that order through. But in the shadows, someone's been watching everything that's taking place. I'm sure his eyes were puffy, his head bowed down, in his hands a bag of 30 pieces of silver. I don't know. We can't know what Judas expected to happen. But I'm pretty confident that if he had wanted Jesus to ultimately be put to death Thursday night, by Friday morning he had changed his mind. He realized he made a mistake. He had made a huge mistake and totally distraught he has to do something to change what he's done. And so as we've read, he, he goes into where the religious leaders are meeting and he brings his bag of 30 pieces of silver and he throws it at them and says, I have made a huge mistake. But I could care less about Judas. He's a traitor. No one's got time for a traitor. He's yesterday's news. They don't want Judas. They don't want his money. They got what they wanted. They had Jesus. And Judas realized he sinned. In fact, the greatest sin that anyone could ever commit. And the price for his sin was going to be the innocent blood of Jesus. Judas has lost his money. He's lost his Lord. And very soon he's going to lose his life. And the Bible just as bluntly as Mike read it earlier, tells us that Judas went out and hung himself. The actions of a man who is not going to be able to live with himself for the memory of what he had just done. And in perhaps one of the greatest ironies of the Easter story, Judas dies before Jesus dies. As you hear the story about Judas, maybe your initial reaction is like my initial reaction. Judas was a bad apple. Always a bad apple. Rotten to the core. But that's not what we see from Scripture. Judas most likely was brought up in an average, loving family. Judas was a real popular name. If you were a boy in first century, you wanted to be called Judas. It had historical and heroic ties. Judas comes from Judah, so you go all the way back to Jacob and his son Judah. 
the line, sorry, the, the, the line of Judah was, was from which the Messiah was going to come. As far as heroic terms, everyone's hero in first century um, Israel was Judas the Hammer. Sounds like a good wrestling name. Judas the Hammer, Judas Maccabee, who led the, the, the Israelites in revolt about 100 years earlier. It's all, he had a very common name, Judas. And then Iscariot, it tells us a couple things about him. Uh, one, it tells us that he was a man from the land of Kerioth, which means he was Judean, which made him the only Judean disciple of the twelve. But it can also tell us something very telling about Judas. Because the word can also be translated assassin. It's very likely that Judas was a zealot. And the zealots wanted to see the physical, physical removal of Roman oppression. They wanted to see the kingdom and they wanted to see the kingdom now. And that very well may have been the reason why Judas chose to be a disciple in the first place. But, but we don't know. But certainly all the disciples had a little bit of that zealous uh, desire to see the kingdom and to see the kingdom now and to see that the promised Messiah would lead in this revolt and would take the throne and the Romans would be gone. But there's nothing suspicious about Judas from, which we, from what we read in Scripture. He didn't have any known vices. He didn't have a dishonorable past. He wasn't a tax collector. Uh, he didn't have any character weaknesses. Uh, he wasn't impulsive like Peter. He, wa- he, he wasn't prone to anger like John and, and James. Nothing suspicious. In fact, really, he's presented, and we, from what we can surmise, he was seen as a pretty outstanding guy. I mean, from what we know from Scripture, Jesus personally called him to be an apostle. And Judas left everything to follow Jesus. He followed Jesus, and the other disciples experienced everything they did for three and a half years. He saw all the healings, he heard all the teaching. He saw Jesus remove demons and and raise people from the dead. He was even sent to preach the gospel. He experienced everything that the other 11 disciples did. And understand this, the 11 disciples saw nothing suspicious in the person of Judas. He he was a good guy. He, He was perhaps a model follower of Jesus. They didn't just see him in a positive light. I think they saw him even greater than that. They saw him as trustworthy, someone who could be counted on. They made him responsible for the money bag. That's what the scary part about Judas is. He looked a lot from the outside like a lot of us do. He walked the walk. He talked the talk. He didn't throw himself at Jesus like some of the other disciples did. As I said, he wasn't impulsive. He, 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 he wasn't prone to temper tantrums. 
and yet he sold Jesus out for 30 measly pieces of silver. How could Judas do that? What happened? Unfortunately, the gospel writers don't tell us what motivated Judas. We can surmise from things they said. Judas was gone too soon to be able to ask him what his motivations were. And so what we're left to do is is to surmise and to try to read between the lines of some of the things that we we see in the narratives. And and many people have written on this and have come uh, up with all sorts of motivations for why Judas did what he did. And and, and maybe I could just list a couple of them for you. Greed. You got 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave. So Judas was not going to get rich from that. And I can't imagine he was getting rich from the money box, but that's one of the motivations that suggested. Jealousy. He was the only um, Judean of the 12. The rest were Galilean. And he was not part of the inner three. He was part of Jesus' inner circle of 12, but he wasn't part of the inner three. So maybe he was jealous. Probably the most popular theory as far as the motivation is concerned is that Judas was disillusioned. He was not satisfied with the direction that Jesus and his ministry was going. And then, to finish that short list, is he was frightened, fearful. He was afraid of the direction that Jesus and his ministry was going, and he had to save his own skin. And so maybe it's helpful to list some of those motivations, but I think it's more helpful to look at the story of Judas by looking at the downward spiral, the the progressive nature of sin in his life. Because I can relate, I can understand, and although we aren't going to betray Jesus with a kiss, I think we can start putting ourselves into the story. Because we see the downward spiral of sin in Judas's life. And yes, I believe it begins with his disillusionment, his disenchantment with where Jesus was going with his ministry. As I said, we could go all the way back to the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe that's where it began. If Judas joined the disciples and followed Jesus because he truly believed that Jesus was going to set up a kingdom here and now and, and get rid of the Roman, Roman oppression... If you remember back to the story when he's feeding the 5,000, the crowd is, 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 is marveling at what Jesus has done. And they want to set him up right now. They want to crown him right then. And what does Jesus do? He escapes to the other side of the lake. And so some of his followers follow him across the lake and, and Jesus begins to teach them that he's going to suffer and all these things that are going to happen. And he talks about this radical cost of being his follower. And at the end of that, it says a lot of people who are following Jesus decided it was too costly and they turned away and they didn't want to follow him anymore. Maybe that's where Judas and his disillusionment began. Certainly, it was when Jesus is anointed with this expensive perfume. What a waste, the disciples said. That money could be used for the poor. And Judas wholeheartedly agreed. What a waste. That money could fill my pockets. John tells us that he was pilfering from the treasury box. He was was stealing. 
And so maybe that's where his disillusionment climaxed. See, Judas wanted Jesus to set up the kingdom now. He wanted to be the Messiah that led in this revolt. And yet every time the conversation went in that direction, Jesus turned the direction. He didn't want to talk about that. Jesus wanted to talk about the fact that he was going to, be, he was going to suffer. He was, he was going to put, be put to death. And, and then Jesus starts ticking off the religious leaders. He starts ticking off and scaring away all these other people that were following him. And Judas has got to get to a point where he says, what gives? What is this about? This isn't what I signed up for. I want the kingdom now, not in another world. All this talk, everything that's happening, it's a cop-out. It's a sign of weakness and defeat. And so Judas is dissatisfied. Crucifixion is not a good career move. For him, for Jesus, for where this movement is going, and I believe Judas, totally dissatisfied, totally disillusioned, is now a prime candidate for spiritual failure. I don't think Judas is the only person that's experienced that. When we are dissatisfied with God, when we are disillusioned with where God is taking us in life and where we see the ministry of the church and the ministry of his people going, And when we start questioning God and when we're disappointed in God and we think we could do it better, we become a prime candidate for spiritual failure. You see, Judas didn't become a betrayer and a person doesn't become a murderer and a person doesn't become an adulterer and on and on that list could go just like that. It's when we open the door just slightly to sin. And then we open it further and we open it further and we open it further until the door is fully open and we've totally yielded ourselves to sin. That's when spiritual failure is complete. And in the story of Judas, we see that spiritual failure and that progression of sin. He starts pilfering. He starts coming up with a plan on on how how he can change things. And he decides that he's going to meet with the enemy and and he's going to plan on how they can arrest Jesus. And then he takes the bread from from Jesus and walks out into the darkness. And then he arrives with the soldiers to arrest Jesus. And so we see this progression of sin, this demise, and the demise is complete when Judas betrays Jesus with that kiss. A faithful follower becomes an energetic betrayer of Jesus. As you know, I like stories with good endings. I'm a Hallmark guy, right? I reminded you that last week. I hate watching movies. I don't like reading books where I get to the end. It's like, oh, you got to be kidding. They didn't wrap it up in a nice Hallmark kind of way. Well, this is definitely a story that does not have a good ending. I mean, I cringed a little bit when I texted Daniel to tell him the scripture reading for this morning. The poor Mike would get to the end of our scripture reading. Judas went out and he hung himself. And now let's sing another worship song because you're all pumped up to worship. It's not a happy ending. 
I mean, if, if, if Judas's remorse squeaked him into heaven somehow, maybe there was some kind of a little bit of a good ending, happy ending to the story. But the Bible makes it very clear that that's not the case. Judas's remorse did not lead to repentance or forgiveness. Scripture is very clear that because of his sin and because he did not repent and, and was not forgiven, that Judas is eternally separated from God. And I know how you define hell. The Bible uses all sorts of descriptions for hell. But to me, if you really put your mind into it, when a person dies and then discovers who the triune God really is and and experiences Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and then is told, that is not for you. You will be eternally separated from God. I can't think of a greater hell than that. And that's what Judas's experience is. And you hear that, and maybe you're happy that that's the ending for Judas. He deserved it, and you're just glad that Judas is a part of history. It's all in the past. And that's how I felt about Judas. He's just kind of a necessary evil to the Easter story until I had to look through his window this week. And I saw my reflection. And I realized what happened to Judas can happen to me. What Judas did, I can do. And if we fail to see that, we failed to to grasp the main point of the story and of this morning's message. In many ways, Judas is like us, And we can be like Judas. That's a horrible thing to say. Yes, Judas is dead. Judas Iscariot is gone. But as I faced my reflection in the window of Judas' sin, I realized that his spirit lives on. His spirit lives on in those of us who play the religious game. And those of us who claim to have a deep commitment with God, and yet that's not true. It lives on in those of us who when it's convenient we come to church to see what we can get out of it for us. That spirit lives in those of us who go through the motions, who give and who attend and who serve and who follow all the rules. But we don't deeply love Jesus. I was driving to Peterborough yesterday with Graham. And Graham and I will banter back and forth often. And one thing he likes to ask me is, Dad, am I your second favorite oldest son? And he is my oldest son, if you don't know. So there's a little bit of humor and a little fun we have with, with that. Then out of nowhere, he asked me this question. Dad, do you love Jesus more than anything? And I couldn't give the pat answer. I had to be honest. I said, Graham, I know I don't love him as much as I should. One of the words that was mentioned about Judas Iscariot was betrayal. And it's funny, it was, it was really about Friday when after I spent all week studying this passage and, and the story, 
What does betrayal actually mean? And so I, I looked it up in the dictionary, and here's some of the ways it's defined. Deliberate, sorry, what is it? Deliberate, to deliberately be disloyal. A second definition was to disappoint or hurt. And the third one was to turn away and sell out. And as I looked through the window of sin and I saw my reflection, I had to ask myself some soul-searching questions and I'm going to ask these questions of you. Given that definition or those definitions of betrayal, what would it take for you to sell out Jesus? What would it take for you to deliberately be disloyal? To disappoint or hurt? To turn your back on Jesus and sell him out? Would it be for a job? Would it be for money? Would it be for saving your own skin? Would it be because you're not satisfied with God? You're disillusioned with what God is doing in your life? Would you sell out Jesus? Would you betray him so that you could win the favor of friends? That's one of the good things of looking through Judas's window because it forces you to examine your basic commitment to Jesus. I got I to wrap this up. And, you know, there's a story that I, I came across several times as I was looking through different sources for this message. And it's a story that was uh, first written in the Saturday Review magazine. And it's a story about an artist who was contracted to paint a mural in a Sicilian cathedral. And it was to be a mural of the whole life of Jesus. And so this artist agreed and, and in fact, made it his life work. And one of the first things he did was looked for models that would pose for him. And he found this, bro- this, this brilliant 12-year-old boy. And he said, this, this is who is going to be the Christ child. And so he brings this 12-year-old boy into the cathedral and he, and he paints the uh, picture of him uh, for uh, using him for Jesus as a child on the mural. 50 years passes by. The mural's almost complete. One last picture to paint, and it's Judas. The artist is in the local tavern, and this drunk man stumbles in, wearing the uh, the appearance of someone who's made a lot of bad choices in life, lived a real hard life. And he says, there's Judas. And so he's able to convince this man to come into the cathedral and to pose for him. And as he's beginning to paint, this drunkard starts to cry. And the heart's going, what in the world is going on? What's wrong? And the man looks at him and says, Mister, don't you recognize me? points at the Christ child. I posed for that picture 50 years ago. You see, sin and its consequences show no mercy. They progress until they take the man.
But there is good news in the story and in the story of Easter. And that is that sin does not have to have the final word. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for you and me so that we can become God's righteousness. Allison reminded me of a song this morning. It's a song by the Sidewalk Prophets. And one of the verses that I wanted to close with was the verse I closed with last week. That it's in the midst of murder and betrayal and this horrific story of Judas. As we look through the window of sin, we see the hand of God. And we see his love. And that verse is that God demonstrates his love in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the words of the chorus of that song that Allison was reminding me of say this, and with that, the praise team, you can come up after I finish reading it. I am a thorn in your crown, but you love me anyway. I'm the sweat from your brow, but you love me anyway. I am the nail in your wrist, but you love me anyway. I am Judas's kiss, but you love me anyways. See now, I am the man who yelled out from the crowd for your blood to be spilled on this earth-shaking ground. Yes, and I turned away with a smile on my face, with a sin in my heart tried to bury your grace, and then alone in the night I still called out for you, so ashamed of my life, but you love me anyway. And that's the love that God has for you. That the window of sin and the sin that we see and its destruction isn't the final word. It doesn't have to be the final word. God sent his son to offer us a solution. And you just need to embrace that for yourself. Daniel.